Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Now, for those of you who have been following along with this show, you'll have listened to last week's interview with the German sociologist Gabriel Kubi, who also wrote The Global Sexual Revolution, The Destruction of Freedom in the Name of Freedom. And this is a, a brilliant book that describes what, what took place, especially in Europe, how the sexual revolution really took root and how it began to transform society. Well, today I want to talk to an expert who has done an incredible amount of research here in North America that essentially goes towards answering the question, how did we get to this place in our society? Many of you might remember the same thing that I do, which is back in 2004, for those of you uh, who were following politics back then already, uh, during the election between John Kerry and George W. Bush, there were also a whole bunch of mini uh, referendums going on at the same time on same-sex marriage. And some of you might remember that in every single state where gay marriage was on the ballot, huge majorities of Americans, even in very liberal states, voted against same-sex marriage. Uh, four years after that, this includes uh, the state of California. And so Daryl Paul, who is a professor of political science, he wrote this genius book that really delves into this issue and takes a look at the data to explain how America went from a nation that was firmly opposed to same-sex marriage and supportive of the traditional view of marriage to a nation that supports uh, same-sex marriage. And his book came out last year from Baylor University Press. It's called From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. Just to give you a bit of background on a Dr. Paul, he has a BA from the University of Minnesota, an MA from the from George Washington University in International Relations, and then a PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota. And his research mainly focuses on class ideology in Western countries and how these ideologies manifest themselves in public policy. And his first book, uh, which came out in 2005, is called rescaling international political economy, and it studied the role of subnational states in the operation of neoliberal globalization. So this book uh, that came out last year from Baylor University Press is obviously quite a bit different than that. And this book really does a phenomenal job of explaining how the elites managed to bring ordinary Americans over to support for same-sex marriage. And this book was tremendously helpful for me uh, taking a look at where our culture has uh, essentially gotten to in 2019, how uh, we went in a matter of, of 15 years from a nation that really did support the traditional view of marriage, that held to a traditional understanding of the world, uh, to the culture we're in now, which is sort of running pell-mell further down the road to madness as each year passes by. So without any further introduction from me, I'd like to present to you this conversation with Dr. Daryl E. Paul on his book, From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. So your book is called uh, From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. Could you explain that for our listeners? Sure. So the book is an attempt to 
explain how the United States got same-sex marriage. And it is an argument that the literature that exists now, I think, doesn't really capture um, an answer to that question. So there's lots of books on the kind of moral, philosophical, legal side. There's books on the kind of story about social movements, if you will. But what I was interested in is how same-sex marriage came to have a mass base of support. And so that's um, exactly what I try to do in the book to explain how it came to be um, not just a law of the land, but also a widely supported social position. Yeah, just to start off, because I I remember very keenly, as I'm sure you do as well, watching the 2004 election unfold, uh, George W. Bush versus John Kerry, and seeing state after state after state, including California, uh, and I think even Maine, reject same-sex marriage democratically. Uh, You know, large majorities of voters voting against it. And then, as you say in your book, by 2011, we have a majority of Americans supporting the idea of same-sex marriage. That's an enormous shift in a very short amount of time. So how do we start to explain how this shift took place? What I do in the book is take a class approach. I really think that the elites, essentially, in the United States uh, change their minds, and elite views kind of broadly shape the rest of society. So the subtitle of the book is How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. And so I spend a lot of time in the book trying to document that elite views did change and, uh, and then explain why they did change. Now, elites is a word that we've been hearing a lot lately. Uh, Dr. Gabrielle Kuby, who wrote a book called The, the Global Sexual Revolution, she's a, a prominent European academic, and she also talks about how the elites changed their mind on same-sex marriage, on gender fluidity. But just to kind of get an idea, uh, to really define our terms here, when you say the elites, who are you referring to? And let's, let's, let's kind of take a look at the historical narrative, because I know that you start with by saying conservative Protestants uh, were the American elites, and then they sort of lost their prestigious position in the 20s and 30s when it became the mainline liberal Protestants. And so uh, who are the elites and, and, and how has that, that social class evolved in American history? Sure, I, I think it's an absolutely essential question. Um, when I say elites, uh, particularly talking about contemporary elites in America, I really mean people with high levels of education and high incomes. But that's kind of a vague definition itself. So a lot of the research that I show in the book is defining elites even more specifically than that. And so it's people in particular kinds of occupations. So you might say the professional managerial class in America, which is, depending on how broad you want to define that, maybe the top 20% or so uh, of the United States. And so it's people who are academics like me, professors in colleges, it's surgeons and other kinds of medical doctors, uh, psychiatrists, um, lawyers, uh, engineers, people like that, as well as what might be called kind of the lower tier of that class. So we might say elementary school teachers and um, other kinds of uh, kind of healthcare professionals who are maybe not at the sort of, sort of the very elite levels, but maybe you know certain kinds of nurses and whatnot. Managers of large corporations, managers of small ones as well. So what? The elite now, you, as, as you just described it, that makes a lot of sense. So you you discuss in your book and in, in, a, in an article for First Things as well, 
how the elites went from sort of the Great Awakening to the American Civil War, from being conservative Protestants uh, to liberal Protestants, kind of give us a sense of how the elites in the United States have changed before we discuss how the elites uh, themselves changed their minds. Sure, absolutely. Um, so we really haven't had a kind of consistent elite in the United States, I certainly would argue, over its entire history. Uh, elites have changed. And so in the certainly the pre-Civil War era, we kind of have that more kind of small-town, rural, uh, wasp, if you will, uh, kind of middle-class America. And so the elites were representatives of, of, of that social class. And so they would dominate the highest institutions of the society. Their, their leaders would be presidents and senators and um, heads of the leading educational institutions and whatnot in the media, for example, as well. And then after the Civil War, there's uh, the rapid industrialization of the country in the late 19th century, and a new elite begins to challenge the old one. And the new elite is really tied to that new economy, that uh, industrial economy, railroads and heavy manufacturing, East Coast banking interests, those kinds of things. And they start supporting a new kind of educational model. So you get the invention of uh, graduate schools in the United States designed to support industrialization, right? Not any longer focused on kind of crafting um, the the leaders of the church uh, for the next uh, uh, generation. And so you get the transformation of your Yales and your Harvards and whatnot from being schools that produced clergy to being schools that produced academics who then could serve the state and tell you how to write a better constitution or how to, you know, dig oil out of the ground or whatever else uh, they might be interested in. And so I think that elite really comes to dominate the country in the interwar period. And so you get the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, which is kind of the, uh, the symbol of, I think, their victory. And they dominate, particularly through um, the mainline Protestant churches, down until uh, much more recently, down to probably the 70s and the 80s. And in, the, in that period, and especially throughout the whole post-World War II period, you get the growth of this new class, which is our elite today, the rise of professionals and managers, which didn't have a lot of those kinds of people 100 or 150 years ago. Now we have a lot of them, and their culture is the one that really puts a stamp on the overall culture of the country. So today's elites, uh, I assume in the, in the 70s, the late 60s, the 70s, they weren't as secular as they are now. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, the the secularization, I think, is really a phenomenon of the 90s down to the present. So when we're looking at, at today's elites, and it's interesting uh, looking at your descriptions uh, in your book, I, I couldn't help but think of the recently deceased George H.W. Bush. He very much fits some of your definitions of the elite almost perfectly. And yet, because he was of a different era, he didn't share a lot of the same views as the elite of today, even though he was very friendly with them. So how did the elite of today start to shift in the direction of what is is definitely a radical, radical progressivist position? Like, just for example, Barack Obama could probably be considered a, a far more um, uh, new and secular elite because there's a lot of evidence to indicate that he was a supporter of same-sex marriage early in his career and simply sort of pretended that he didn't uh, and waited for the culture to catch up with him. But it's certainly true for, for the Clintons, for example, that they were not supportive of same-sex marriage. I doubt they'd even heard of transgenderism. 
So how did this this very real shift take place? How did we get from somebody like Bill Clinton uh, passing the Defense of Marriage Act in the 90s um, to Hillary Clinton running against those who held uh, her husband and her, her own former position as bigots, homophobes, you name it? So if you look at public opinion polling on this question, and there's lots of good places to get that. A lot of the best data that I have is from a long-running public opinion poll run out of the University of Chicago called the General Social Survey. You see this, what I call in the book, a dam break in public opinion in the early 1990s. And so anybody who is kind of coming of age and taking political power before the early 90s is really kind of playing catch-up in terms of the cultural values and the cultural value shift that's going on in the country. And so I think that's a good example that you gave of the Clintons who are in power in Arkansas in the 80s, and obviously Clinton becomes president in 93, whereas Obama's kind of a, of a, of a younger uh, time period. But things begin to change really rapidly in the 90s and into the 2000s, right, the last decade. And I think that's really the difficult thing to parse out, right? What exactly is changing and, and moreover, why is it changing? So I've got three arguments that I think are complementary okay. in the book. One of them is an argument about family structure. One of them is an argument about um, the diversity culture and particularly diversity culture within corporate America. And then I have a third argument that is kind of much more narrowly about politics and, and the elites kind of fighting it out, the older conservative elites versus the, the newer, more liberal elites. Well, let's work through those three arguments before we go down to the cultural shift between 2004 and, and 2011. So uh, first, family structure. How did the elites change their mind? Because we, we kind of have to understand how the elites in America came on board a same-sex marriage before we can understand your central thesis, which is how the elites brought America to same-sex marriage. Right. Um, I think that they changed their mind because they had really stopped believing in an old model of marriage, but they didn't realize that they had stopped believing in it. And so once the question of same-sex marriage came up, and in particular, once I think elites had kind of digested the argument, they came to realize that they didn't believe what they thought that they had believed. So we have an old model uh, which joins together procreation and marriage and sex. All three of those things are supposed to be together within the model of marriage. Right. So you're only supposed to have sex with your spouse. You're only supposed to raise children with your spouse. And, and therefore, you're supposed to be married right, to the person that you have this sexual uh, relationship with and this, this kind of relationship of raising the next generation. And I think elites just stop believing in that. Why they stop believing in it is a hard question, but I think it has to do with their class position. It has to do with lots of big, not just social, but also economic changes in our country. Urbanization, higher levels of education, uh, particularly much higher levels of education for women. Um, people of very high education and wealth marrying each other, and so they're kind of reinforcing the, the, the class dimensions. Um, and so by the time we get into the 90s and younger people are starting to change their minds, elites suddenly realize that they don't believe that sex and child raising and marriage all go together. They're, in fact, fine to split those things up. And once you split those things up, all of a sudden same-sex marriage doesn't seem strange. It doesn't seem unusual. It doesn't seem wrong. It just seems like another perfectly reasonable way to go about and live one's life and create a family. 
is there anything <clears throat> when when we take a look at at the elites and who they were exposed to and and who they lived with? There's a, a famous quote from William F. Buckley when he was told that the new well, since debunked Kinsey reports, but he was told that ten uh, percent of the population was gay, and and Buckley replied, "Well, if that's true, then I've met all of them." Because those <laughs> those were the circles he ran in, right? He was friends with everybody, you know, uh, from uh, Truman Capote and even, you know, Andy Warhol. So he, he knew all of these people. Is it also perhaps true that the reason the rural areas took longer to accept these sorts of things is because they simply were more out and, and more common in the cities? And even somebody like William F. Buckley, who as a devout Catholic would never have supported same-sex marriage, was um, objectively far more tolerant uh, to gay people in his social circles because they made up part of his social circles from the beginning of his career right to the end of it. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. Certainly, um, certain cities have a larger uh, presence of gay men and lesbians than other cities do. Um, What I don't find convincing, though, is that the tolerance argument carries a lot of weight, and in particular that it explains why elites change their mind. In fact, I don't think there's good evidence at all that that's the case. And so one of the things I do in the book is try to demonstrate that the toleration argument just doesn't carry the water that it has to carry. Elites are just as um, discriminatory or or intolerant of people as non-elites or the masses, if we would want to use that word. It's just that they direct their toleration towards different kinds of groups. So, for example, um, elites tend to be quite intolerant of Southerners compared to the masses. They tend to be quite intolerant of um, evangelicals and Mormons as well. So I think it's less that they're a tolerant class, but they decided to if you will, vent their toleration, if I can use that phrase, on a particular group of people. And so the question is, why that group rather than others? And that's where I think the cultural argument becomes really important. Right. So let's look at that. Why is it that specific group? Because statistically speaking, it's very, very interesting. If you look at the most recent uh, stats for the Center for Disease Control and the states, Less than 4% of the entire population identifies as LGBT, or I don't know what the full acronym is right now. I saw a new one recently. But like of the people who identify with one of the letters in, in the acronym, it's less than 4% of the population, and yet it's all we ever hear about these days. It's There's something new in the news uh, uh, quite literally every single day. Um, and so as a result of that, there's an enormous feeling amongst Americans, especially that they make up a much larger percent of the uh, percentage of the population than they actually do. I saw one poll that said Americans, when asked to guess, estimated that over 20 percent of Americans were LGBT because of 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 the amount they saw it in their films, in their movies, in the news, uh, in the media and those sorts of things. So why why this group and why so much attention to this group? Why the uh, the disproportionate response? to borrow a foreign policy uh, moniker. I, I think the, the numbers that you cited, Jonathan, are really important, right? That, that it's, you know, four, six, you know, who knows? Um, it's difficult to say exactly, kind of pin down the number, but it's a lot less than many Americans, say in a Gallup poll, like you just mentioned, uh, would say 20. I've, I've even seen polls that some Americans think it's 25%. Um, so I think that much of the reason is tied to this 
larger ideology of diversity that is so prominent among elites, and therefore it's quite prominent in the rest of society. It comes through our educational institutions, it comes through uh, the news media, it comes through entertainment media, all of these places, which are dominated by different kinds of elites, of course. And so what I argue in the book is that gays and lesbians have a particular kind of symbolic status within, if you will, the firmament of diversity. They embody diversity in a way that others don't. And what gays and lesbians um, do for the diversity ideology is they tie it to authenticity and they tie it to success. And so they become a really attractive symbol for diversity. Not only are they different, and so they kind of play on the interest and the celebration of difference in uh, the, uh, the diversity ideology as we have now, but also they tap into kind of deep American interest in authenticity. Um, and so I think the whole coming out process that's associated with gays and lesbians is part of the reason why they're such um, so interesting to elites. And... Also, um, there is um, the, the, the quality of success. It's not to say that actually gays and lesbians are particularly successful in America, although lesbians do tend to have better kinds of economic and career outcomes, but gay men often don't have as good a, a, of those outcomes uh, compared to, say, um, uh, uh, non-gay men. But what is interesting is that the media advertising, for example, uses gays and lesbians as a prestige category. And so they like to increasingly put them in their advertising because they have a certain kind of cachet. And so I think those qualities make uh, gays and lesbians a particularly attractive symbol for diversity. And so I think this is part of the reason why corporations have really embraced this ideology and want to use it in their advertising and want to, for example, score really highly on the human rights campaign's um, uh, metrics of, of responding to the demands that they put on corporate America. So when did the diversity ideology become so important? Because the elites are, are, are generally speaking, a, a pretty monolithic group in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've noticed this even doing research, not only on this issue, but other issues, is the vast majority of the supporters of these new emerging and evolving ideologies tend to be rich and white. So why, why is it that this particular group of people um, holds to this, this ideology of diversity uh, so firmly and so strongly uh, when, when it's not something that's often reflected in, in the makeup of their class, and and it's 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 something that they seem to pay uh, lip service to, much as you know, like the phrase "champagne socialist." It's you can promote an idea without living it. I think noticing that most elites in America are rich, kind of by definition, if you will, but also heavily white, or it's the whitest social class in America, is a really important observation. So it's an ideology that is particularly supported by highly educated, on the whole, richer white people. And I think it's a way, in part, of legitimating their own power and influence, at least to themselves. It's not clear how many other people outside of their social class believe it, um, but certainly it, it, it legitimates themselves to themselves. 
I think it helps to form the coalition that's just really characteristic of the Democratic Party in the United States today, uh, where you have lots of rich white liberals as well as blacks and at least a large chunk of Hispanic voters as well. So I think it helps that political coalition stay together. And also, one of the, the arguments I make in the book is that it's a form of, as I say, diversity without tears. Rich white liberals don't have to really sacrifice much to integrate gays and lesbians into the class, into corporate America, into the universities, etc. To a large extent, they're already in those institutions. And so it's a kind of a painless, nearly cost-free way of um, promoting their own righteousness. <laughs> that would be, uh, I can just imagine heads exploding uh, hearing that particular <laughs> argument because you've just basically academically explained a type of virtue signaling that they would, uh, they would object to in very strong terms. Well, what was the, what was the switch here? Because one of the things I noticed when I was going through your work is that a lot of the arguments that they used to make were very obviously not the case. So a lot of, of major corporations that got on board with the Rainbow Agenda, for example, and would, would really integrate, you know, gay symbolism, um, LGBT, uh, like families, all this sorts of thing in, into their advertising campaigns, into their makeup, you know, putting the rainbow on, on their logo during Pride Month or and that sort of thing, is that they initially claimed, well, this is what our customers want and the customer is always right, when all the polling indicates that the, the corporate manifestation of the rainbow agenda was actually part of moving the culture towards acceptance rather than simply reflecting an acceptance as it already existed. So when did the when did the elites make the decision to sort of drag the culture along with them on this path? Human rights campaign, one of the former presidents at least, um, notices, and I quote him in the book, that corporate America was way ahead of the rest of the country on this issue. And of course, he's, he's thanking corporate America for this. And I think that's a really important observation. We kind of have a sense that corporations tend to be really cautious on cultural issues because they don't want to alienate a huge chunk of their consumer base. Yeah. But on this issue, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, they really reached way ahead of what the wider society was interested in and wanted to do. And so it is kind of a challenging question, right, to figure out why that is. And I'm sure that there's kind of specific sorts of answers for specific kinds of corporations. So I have a sense that because some corporations are particularly interested in mainstreaming um, gays and lesbians in their advertising for a general audience. And so my suspicion is that there are like particular people in these corporations, in their advertising sections, in their um, human, um, uh, uh, human relations departments that are particularly vigorous on this issue, whereas others are not. Some of it is just the economic sector that they happen to be in. So, for example, one of the things I, I, I do in terms of data collection in the book is look at corporations that tweeted out after the Obergefell decision that nationalized same-sex marriage, uh, which ones were praising it, which ones didn't say anything. No corporations criticized it, which I think is an interesting thing to note. And it's mo the corporations that supported it that, that wanted to sort of publicly associate themselves with Obergefell on the day that it was handed down by the Supreme Court were corporations in the tech sector were corporations in uh, leisure consumption industries like airline travel and hotels, um, corporations in law, for example. 
um, new economy kinds of, of corporations that I think are much more urban. They're located, their headquarters are much more in the kind of professional class centers of our country uh, in the United States, in the, the Northeast, kind of the Boston-Washington corridor, and out on the West Coast, kind of from Seattle uh, all the way down to L.A. and San Diego. And um, you didn't see this kind of um, praising of Obergefell from you know, corporations in manufacturing, in the oil industry, and in energy in general. Um, and I think that that's part of the, the answer there, is that there's something about the new economy and the geographical location of these corporations that makes them particularly interested in diversity ideology and in gays and lesbians as a symbol of that ideology. So if we look at the, the space of time between 2004 and 2011, what, what year do you think was the year when you know, the hinge sort of swung history in their direction? Uh, at least in terms of, of public opinion, because one of the things, go, e even going through your explanations in the book, the 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 extent, the sheer size of the swing between 04 and 2011 still shocks me every time. Uh, that it was almost a reversal, a 60-40 reversal in terms of support for gay marriage. And I know that most of our listeners will be wondering, how did that happen? How how did things get so bad? so fast from the traditionalist Christian point of view, when we have the early 2000s, uh, most people still support the traditional family arrangement. And then you have, uh, you know, it's not even 2020 and everybody's supporting it by and large. How, how did that take place in, in terms that our listeners can really understand? If you look at the opinion data, um, there's kind of two eras of change. The first era of change is from the early 90s down to kind of the early 2000s. And that is also a very rapid transformation. But the thing is, people might not have noticed it as much as because the kind of anti or, or, or the anti-normalization view, I'd say. And by normalization, I mean the normalization of homosexuality. That is making it culturally just simply a normal, if minority, expression of sexual desire and behavior. So there really is a rapid change from the early 90s to the early 2000s. But the opposition to normalization goes from about 80% of Americans down to kind of about 60%. And so it's still a pretty clear majority. And this is where you get the beginnings of the referenda to inscribe opposite-sex right. marriage in constitutions and all of that kind of business. Um, and then there's kind of this, pro this, this, this brief period of, you know, five years or so where things are kind of pretty stable, as you just said, Jonathan, this kind of 60-40 split. And then in the early 2000s, we get another really rapid change of opinion. And so I don't really try to kind of parse that out in the book, but I think some of it is generational. So you just have younger people who are much more supportive than older people, and some of those older people are dying off over the course of, you know, from the early 90s down to the uh, 2010s, for example. Um, but also the, the kind of the shift in elite opinion really takes place there, and so it becomes a view that you really need to adopt if you're going to be kind of a respectable member of the elite class. Now, one of the things that's very, very interesting, so that, that I think explains the shift in pretty clear terms, but what is still unfolding and what we don't entirely understand now is is what, what happens to traditionalist, more conservative voters when they are a distinct minority. And this, this question has multiple layers. 
And so I'll, I'll ask you a, a few questions that, that might ask you to play profit more than you're willing to do. But one of the things I've been very interested in is when you look at, for example, the election of Donald Trump, which you you actually write about in terms of of class warfare, which I find very interesting. But very specifically, if you look at the traditional Republican coalition, it's generally been big business and social conservatives. And I'm simplifying this for the for the sake of the discussion, but it's, it's fair to say that those were two very big uh, sections, uh, factions of the Republican base. And now what you have is the very tax cuts being passed by the Republican Party are actually helping the very businesses and corporations who spend much of their time demonizing those who disagree with them on same-sex marriage. And so it's been interesting to see the Republican Party trying to figure out what its identity will be when, at least to my mind, it appears that two of their key factions uh, cannot coexist comfortably in the same political party. You simply can't have one group that despises uh, another group and treats them with contempt. Um, And it's also suicidal for the Republican Party to continually support um, the, you know, corporations that oppose much of its agenda as opposed to supporting the middle class voters who have a more consistently traditional values. What's your take on all of this? I mean, it really is a great irony, if you will, right? As you as you pointed out, that that social conservatives have essentially voted for candidates that are the exact social actors that are undermining social conservatives. Um, so it's kind of a nonsensical political position and, and political acts for social conservatives to engage in. Um, some big businesses really are um, strongly supportive of the Democratic Party. So, for example, uh, the tech sector and corporations associated with Silicon Valley, they tend to be heavily Democratic. And so some big businesses really have um, kind of shifted away, if you will, from the Republican Party and gone over to the Democrats. Uh, One of the pieces that I wrote recently for First Things was demonstrating that the richest congressional districts in the country uh, overwhelmingly are responsible for the Democrats taking the U.S. House of Representatives uh, in the 2018 elections. So lots of rich people, uh, professional managerial class types, are moving uh, more solidly in the Democratic direction. And so what I think social conservatives uh, should be thinking about is who are their allies going to be and what political party can they most effectively work through. In my view, I don't think the Democratic Party is uh, the place where they can get anything done uh, because of the strength of the professional class and all of these very powerful corporations, particularly Silicon Valley, um, on the other side of the culture wars. So they're going to have to find ways to drag voters into the Republican Party. And uh, that's, I think, where a lot of the creative thinking needs to happen. Otherwise, social conservatives who are now really a minority in the United States. Um, They're going to be left without any allies at all, and they're going to be in real trouble. So you've written a lot about class warfare. When we look at this unfolding situation and we look at at Donald Trump sort of smashing his way through a lineup of 17 traditional Republican candidates taking over the party, uh, I remember uh, during the 2016 election, a lot of people were using phrases like blue-collar billionaire, and my instinctive response was, like, come on, there's no such thing. he didn't really seem like somebody who had any set of principles. It, it still doesn't seem like that in many ways. 
but yet he's an elite by the standards that you laid out previously. He's he's rich. Uh, he has you know all these enormous mansions and in in various major cities. At the same time, he's got an Ivy League degree. He's got an Ivy League degree. <laughs> At the same time, he seems to be the person who the elite hates the most. In the context of the arguments that you laid out in your book, how do you how how would you explain this phenomenon? So Trump the Trump phenomenon is a product of I think at least two things that are really important to note. The first is some of the class stuff uh that we've been talking about, you know, for the for the last half hour. That especially the kind of white middle class and the white working class uh saw Donald Trump as something different, uh, that he was a guy that had their interests at heart. And in particular, I think because he was talking about things that other Republican candidates wouldn't talk about or wouldn't commit to. So Trump had very different views on trade. He had very different views on immigration. Um, and I think that really set him apart uh, from all of the other Republican candidates in the 2016 primaries. Um, the other, though, is that um, the kind of establishment Republicans, if you will, couldn't organize themselves around a single candidate. So Trump kind of begins with about a third, roughly, of the vote in the primaries, and that was a floor for him. But if he's competing against, you know, 12 other candidates, I mean, there were a lot of them, right, in the early days in 2016, having a third of the vote is a lot, and that would put him oftentimes in the leadership role. And so just that kind of process of having so many candidates trying to compete for the same voters meant that Trump had a real advantage. And so as he kind of picked off various of the establishment candidates, it came down, right, if you remember in 2016, really to Trump um, uh, uh, versus uh, Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz was also hated by the establishment. Yeah. And so the very fact that it was Trump versus Cruz at the end um, really shows that a, a significant majority of traditional Republican voters had totally rejected their party. And that, I think, is important for us to remember, that what Trump kind of really wrecked in, in the kind of wrecking ball fashion that he is that you noted, the first thing he wrecked was the Republican Party. And then he sought to kind of go on and disrupt other things. But that's the first thing that he did. And, and there, I think, is at least the opening for social conservatives to, to try to make something of the mess that Trump not only did create, but I think is just going to continue to make for the next two years. So chapter seven of your book, when you talk about class culture war, it's it's the elites who've dragged a lot of the country along with them on the issue of same-sex marriage and and are attempting to do the same thing, at least with transgenderism. We'll see how that ends up panning out. But what we end up having now is the people are still consuming the same media. So to what extent are the classes that still oppose same-sex marriage simply going to vanish over the next five to ten years as they increasingly assert themselves in high schools, universities, Hollywood, television, mainstream music? Like, To what extent are... Is that minority going to grow even tinier, in your opinion? Um, that's a great question. Um, so one of the people that I read a lot is Rod Dreher, who's associated with yes. American Conservative Magazine and has the Benedict Option book, which has uh, been quite well-received and gotten a lot of attention. And Dreher's kind of continual argument is that social conservatives have really got to get ready for a very long kind of dark period and unfortunately, I think that's right. Um, 
Politically, though, there's still lots of things that social conservatives can do, and I think alliances that probably um, really need to be pursued that go well outside the kind of traditional Republican Party that they've just gotten used to and and uh, become accustomed to right over the last 50, 60 years or so. Because I don't think conservative, social conservatives are going to grow at all in terms of the percentage of the population. But that doesn't mean that they can't find people, people who are voting Democratic now, um, working class uh, blacks and working class Hispanics, um, people who are you know, skeptical about very high levels of immigration, um, regardless of you know, what they think about a wall, um, people who are very worried about transgenderism, but may be quite happy with same-sex marriage and have no desire to change on that. These are the kinds of political alliances that I think they're going to have to pursue because they're not going to take over uh, a political party. And even if they did, uh, the political party is not going to transform American culture. Now, the last chapter of your book deals with the the myth of tolerance and how this revolution is genuinely attempting to, to claim victims. It's attempting to hound out of business, out of universities, essentially out of the public square, anyone who disagrees on same-sex marriage. And we consistently see this suspicion confirmed over and over again. One of the most recent incidents of uh, a baker being accused of of bigotry, it turns out the lesbian couple who had, uh, air quotes, discovered this had gone to a number of bakeries simply attempting to find somebody who would refuse them I could cite a half dozen examples of this now taking place uh, of either transgender people or, or gay or lesbian people deliberately seeking out businesses and establishments uh, that will feel obliged to refuse them certain services based on, on their conscience that don't want to use their creative skills, for example, to celebrate a same-sex wedding because of their traditional views on marriage. And so what we're, what we're seeing now is, is an ongoing uh, witch hunt uh, trying to find people who disagree with them and then for no good reason attempting to ruin their lives. It seems extraordinarily malicious and mean-spirited in, in, in many ways. It's not that hard to find a gay baker or a gay florist. Uh, you really don't need to find you know, some little old lady who runs a, a florist shop in Oregon and hound her out of business for disagreeing with you on marriage, especially when the law already gives you everything that you want. So why this mean-spiritedness and why this, this hatred for those who disagree with them in such a short amount of time? You know, I think the, as you say, the mean-spiritedness and the hatred, I think, is rooted in the belief that this is really about bigotry and hatred and that this needs to be eradicated from American society. I think it's, again, tied into the diversity ideology that... Um, that not only must we tolerate, but we must celebrate, if you will. And so um, those who are not willing to go along with the second, right, might be perfectly willing to tolerate, but not willing to celebrate, um, it's in violation of the expectations of, of this, this new ideology that we have. I guess it's not that new, right? It's been around for some decades now. But what the effect tends to be then is to drive particularly since we're talking about right, social conservatives and, and, uh, and the politics around the culture wars in America, um, to drive them out of certain kinds of industries, that they're just not really suitable 
to work in certain kinds of industries. So, for example, the wedding industry is kind of the front lines now. Florists and bakers and, and, and other kinds of things that you've mentioned. Um, people doing calligraphy for wedding invitations. This is another uh, example of, of, of stories that have been in the news recently. But you can also see it in professional occupations as well, such as psychiatry and really healthcare uh, more broadly, that perhaps social conservatives just are not suitable to be uh, healthcare providers. You can see it in education, both higher education as well as in uh, K through 12 education. Um, you can look at other countries and you can see that this has gone uh, a lot further in other places than in the United States, but I think the United States may very well be kind of following in those footsteps. One of the most kind of tr tremendously rapid transformations, that's a, it's a bit off topic, but I think it's quite similar, um, is the transformation you see going on in Ireland today. Ireland was a country that had banned abortion until uh, the last few months before they had a referendum. And now you have doctors and nurses demonstrating to try to just retain their jobs and not be forced by law to perform abortions and to have certain kinds of um, conscience uh, exemptions that are quite common, for example, in the U.S., if it can happen within a year in a place like Ireland, we shouldn't be surprised at all that it can happen over the course of five or ten years in a place like the U.S. So I've been asking everybody I get uh, on this show this question because I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see the different points of view on this. I recently asked uh, uh, Dr. Gabi Alkubi, I asked the same question to Anthony Esselin, which is, we we see how fast the shift towards gay marriage took. But when you lay out, it was from the 1990s to the early 2000s and then sort of stage two when it when they shifted into the majority. But what do you think is going to be the case with the issue uh, of transgenderism? It's come upon us way quicker in just a handful of years. I'm only I'm only 30. And this is this this stuff wasn't even around to this extent, at least when I was 25. But there's a lot of people that are saying this is where I get off the train. Um, I, I think it's totally okay if, you know, Tom and John get married. I don't think John can get pregnant and I don't think Susie, you know, has a penis, um, that sort of thing. And it's just like, it seems as if the LGBT movement is demanding too much of people too quickly and that they're beginning to strain credulity, uh, because I've seen a lot of, a lot of liberals, uh, liberals in, in, in media who were completely on board with same-sex marriage and quite enthusiastically so that are expressing a lot of doubt on, on the trans thing. And, and, and it's fair to say that the, the transgenderism ideology has completely taken over the elites, uh, just as, as it did with same-sex marriage. And to some degree, they're coming down with the hammer faster than they did uh, on same-sex marriage with the deplatforming, with the destroying people's careers and lives and things like that. But do you think that the broader population is going to swallow this? Or do you think that this is where it breaks apart? Uh, that That's a great question, right? And, and that's where um, uh, you said you were going to ask me to play prophet. And I, I, I don't know that I particularly have any great insight in that. But I will say this, that I think maybe inches towards suggesting that transgenderism is different from uh, homosexuality. And it's right. in this way, because what, what much of my argument in the book is, is how elites used the issue of same-sex marriage and used homosexuality to, to legitimate themselves. And so um, I'm not painting an argument that 
um, gays and lesbians has sort of captured the elite, but rather that the elite has kind of captured gays and lesbians, at least in, in their kind of symbolic kind of cultural qualities. Right. But I think something quite different has happened now because transgenderism has not been something that has been endorsed by elites as, as homosexuality was. Elites are trying to catch up to transgender activists, and they're trying to catch up to the most kind of radical edge of, of transgenderism. Transgenderism has not legitimated itself off of psychiatry uh, and off of law and off of lots of the other sectors of society and, and kind of branches of knowledge that homosexual, homosexuality legitimated itself through. And so I think elites are just trying to chase after this movement. And the movement, I think, is legitimated primarily by a kind of a radical subjectivity that says, I am what I am, and you have to accept what I am. And that, I think, is a challenge to elites. It's a challenge to elite authority, because I think transgenderism is, is saying, we don't need elites to justify us. We are self-justifying. And that's where I think it's quite different. And that's where I think um, that it is probably going to face a, a different kind of uh, a political contestation than we saw with same-sex marriage. That, and, and, and I wonder if it'll face a greater political reckoning at some point, because what happened with same-sex marriage is essentially LGBT activists successfully managed to win the final skirmish and the rubble of what the institution of marriage once was. Um, heterosexuals destroyed the institution of marriage long before um, LGBT acts, uh, activists gained access to it. But with, with transgenderism, if you look at the 4,000% spike of children identifying as trans in the UK, for example, if you look at the spikes in six states in the US, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this story isn't going to end well. Uh, that when you're, you know, chemically castrating and allowing double mastectomies and all these sorts of things on children when, you know, top researchers at Brown University have said this appears to be a social phenomenon before they get promptly shut up on their work erased from online. It just seems as if uh, with with the same-sex marriage, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? The gay divorce rate spikes? Nobody Nobody cares about that sort of thing anymore. With the issue of transgenderism, however, the consequences are going to be real-world visible and obvious to all in 10 or 15 years. With with same-sex marriage, right, part of my argument is the changes in family structure and that elites realized that they didn't really believe in this conjunction of marriage and sex and procreation like they thought that they had believed. And this is, I think, why they transformed their views on same-sex marriage. They came to understand themselves better. But I think what's going on with transgenderism is quite different. I think elites, as well as the rest of society in the United States and really throughout the West, still believe in the existence of sex. They still believe in gender, and they, um, they believe in the differentiation of the sexes through things like Title IX and girls' sports and uh, competition at the highest levels in the Olympics and all of these kinds of things that are all um, kind of tossed up in the air with transgenderism. And so it's not as if transgenderism has shown elites that they don't believe what they thought they believed. I think it's challenging beliefs that elites, as well as the rest of society, tends to hold and still holds. And so this is why I think um, 
the the challenge that transgender activists have put up has been a lot more fraught. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, and that I think there's been a lot more use of power through institutions um, rather than through culture. And that, I think, is a, an important difference that we see today versus what we saw with same-sex marriage. Uh, one final two-part question, uh, the first part of the question being, what was the one thing you discovered in researching for your book that helped you understand our current culture better and think would help all of our listeners understand it better? And then secondly, where can they get your very excellent book, which I have uh, in front of me right now? <laughs> so the second question is easier to answer. It is uh, from Baylor University Press. Uh, it came out in uh, the spring of this year, 2018. So you can get it from the Baylor website as well as Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and, and any other fine online retailer. Um, the, the first question is a harder one, but I, I think... So one of the things that I think um, illuminated my understanding of this the most is when I came across a story that Alistair McIntyre, the famous uh, uh, British philosopher, uh, told um, about the transformation of cultural views around the taboos in Polynesia. And there's this kind of famous episode, uh, and he tells it in a bit of a simplified form, but of the um, the erosion and really the collapse of the taboos in Hawaii in the early uh, 19th century. And I just thought that that was so telling that the cultural foundations of a society can be eroded, and nobody really recognizes it until something pushes against them that was unexpected, and then the whole structure just collapses. And so I take that as um, as kind of encouragement to always look to the cultural foundations of society and to always tend to them and to always um, be concerned about them because they may be much weaker than we think. And so when the storms come, uh, we're going to have to hold those foundations up to the best of our abilities. Well, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book with us. I'm very happy to talk, Jonathan, always. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Daryl E. Paul, political scientist, on his book, From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to Same-Sex Marriage. For those of you who want to check out our past shows, uh, please go to LifeSiteNews.com, where you'll also find a lot of news and a lot of commentary on what's currently going on in our culture. So please do go and check out that. You can find this podcast on every single podcast platform on the internet. So please go ahead and uh, download previous episodes and be sure to send us your feedback. We're always happy to find out what our listeners thought of the interviews, uh, what conclusions they drew from those interviews. And uh, even if you have a suggestion for who you'd like to see uh, get interviewed on The Van Maren Show. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you join us again next week.